Well, if you would be turning in your copies of Scripture with me to Matthew chapter 12, and we're in the very end of that particular chapter. This begins in uh, verse 46. So Matthew chapter 12, we're going to be in verse 46 through 50. And let's hear this as it really is, God's word to us, his beloved people. Here's what it says. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven, he is my brother to God. Well, our key truth this morning from these words is simply this. Jesus has made us not merely his followers, but his family. Jesus has made us not merely his followers, but his family. And a question I think that raises for us straight away is, what does it take, after all, to make a church a family? As I said just before, it's a commonplace, and a beautiful commonplace, that we get to call the church our family, that God calls us the family of God. And yet, if we don't think about it very much, it can sort of become one of those commonplaces that just sits sort of in the background, and we don't really think about what it calls us to. We don't really think about what it actually says about us as the family of God. So what, after all, does it take to make a church a family? And that may be a, a more pressing question than we tend to realize because relationships are, after all, the heart and the soul of life. Relationships are the heart and the soul of life. Maybe that strikes you as too much of a statement, but I, but I think if you think about it, you'll see that it's true. Think, after all, of who God is as the triune God, the God who has existed from all eternity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and who created the world not because he was lonely or he needed other people to make himself great, but because he enjoyed the fellowship of the Trinity so deeply and so profoundly that he wanted to create a world to share that with. That he, he created us to invite us to experience the deep and profound relationship that he had before the foundations of the earth were laid. God exists in relationship as the triune God. And after all, he made us, Adam and Eve, and all those who are descended from them in his image, primarily to know him and to enjoy fellowship with him forever. And when he looked out upon his creation, after he declared everything good that he saw that he had made, he saw the world that he had made, the dry land and the beasts that inhabited it and the birds in the air, and he said, this is good. He saw the sun and the moon and the stars, and he said, this is very good. He saw the sea and all the creatures in the sea, and he said, this is very good. But when he saw Adam alone, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he created woman to bear with him the image of God, to exist in relationship with him. Relationships are the heart and the soul and life. And remember, it was after he created Adam and Eve together that he pronounces the first ever benediction that we have in Scripture, the first ever blessing, when he blessed them and, then, and told them, multiply and fill the earth with image bearers. Relationships are the heart and the soul of life. And we could go further. We could think about the ways in which God reveals the redemptive story by telling us that it will be unfolded in history through two seeds, two family lines, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And he expressed his covenant faithfulness to his people in covenant faithfulness, in covenant, in relationship. And he told us that the best way that we can understand 
all that he's called us to do, the best way that we could sum up the whole of our duty to God is simply this, that we would love God with all of our heart and soul and strength and might and mind and love our neighbor as ourselves. Relationships are the heart and the soul and life of life. It's interesting. Neuroscientists have discovered that uh, when we experience any sort of potential rupture to relationships that we most cherish, the same neural networks in our brain that register pain are ignited. And, and which is why it's interesting, is why it can be such a, and we felt this, haven't we? Uh, it can be such a heavy thing when we're experiencing emotional pain and relational brokenness, when we hear people seem to make light of it and say things like, well, you just got to trust God. After all, you wouldn't say that to someone who was dealing with a broken arm or a, a, a deathly illness. You wouldn't just say to them, well, you know, after all, forget about all that, just trust God. Well, it can be just as flippant when we deal with emotional pain. The same neural networks in our brains that register pain register emotional disruption and relational disruption precisely because we were made in the God's image, made to know and to love one another, to live in community. By the way, that doesn't go away just because you happen to be an introvert or the way that you recharge your batteries is not in big groups. It means that you, just like everyone else, were made to know and to love people, and you engage in that in a different way. But all of us, as image bearers, were made to exist in relationship because relationship is the heart and the soul of life. Well, I think that fact makes this passage one of the most precious and also, at the same time, one of the most potentially distressing in all of the Gospels. Deeply precious, and yet potentially distressing. In order to see the preciousness of it, let's think for a minute about what can potentially make it distressing. I think there are at least two ways it could be potentially distressing. The first is, Jesus seems here to be kind of dismissive about his natural family, doesn't he? We start to wonder about that. Well, Jesus, I mean, I know that you're good, I know that you're holy and right. I know everything that you do is to reveal the Father who is faithful and good, but you seem to be kind of dismissive of your family, and that strikes us as just not quite right. Whenever I think of this passage, for some reason, I can't get out of my head my own grandmother, my, my nana, my dad's mom. And if any of you have watched the Downton Abbey series, um, and you picture the Dowager Countess, made, played by Dame Maggie Smith, um, if you just imagine that character growing up in Mississippi, that's kind of my nana. Um, and, and, you know, all of the brash personality and all the matriarchal tendencies and, and loveliness, that was her, uh, is her. And, and I love it. I love her. And, uh, and, and she made a point to kind of always remind us of, of the significance of her family growing up in Mississippi and how they all stood together and stuck together and all the history that was there and how we could carry her that and to be encouraged and comforted by that. And so she, she really made that a, a point of emphasis for us. We, we, we also remember that, that, that these are good things. The Lord calls us into good things. That he, he doesn't cast aside and, and, and cause us to be dismissive about things that are true and good and lovely. That story from my Nana, that's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing to remember that we've been called into a family and not just cast aside as lone individuals called to do our own thing. We also resonate with this because we recognize how deeply important family relationships are to our sense of identity. Another picture that we often have of this throughout literature is the ways, and you'll recognize this if you watch any of the Breaking Bad series or the Better Call Saul series, and how the, the dominant ethic that produces so much of the pain and misery and just horrifically bad behavior in that series is driven by the ethic that 
family matters most. And we can, we can feel that. Now, they used, they used that ethic to justify all sorts of heinous, bad behavior, all sorts of going their own way, and eventually it denigrates just into selfish, pure narcissism. But it begins by the feeling that family is above everything. Now, by the way, that, that doesn't just affect us in a negative way. That can also be a very good and profound thing. It's not for nothing that most of the, at least the wisest secular philosophers from Aristotle to Confucius, even to our own day, Jordan Peterson, they recognize that we don't truly grow up, we don't truly become mature until there's somebody in our life that matters more than we do. And for most of us, in fact, probably for all of us in some way or another, that's learned in the context of family. So, so family doesn't just promote and, 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 and give us excuse for sorts of bad behavior. It also produces all sorts of wonderful things. We want to be appreciative of that and to celebrate that. We, we, want, we want to feel that. And so we can be distressed when Jesus seems here to be dismissive of his mother and his brothers. We think to ourselves, Jesus, what are you doing here? That's one reason it can be distressing. Another reason it can be distressing is because Jesus here may seem to be offering us something that, well, we don't really have the imaginative capacity to really appreciate, precisely because family life is such a heavy and weighty thing. And when it is good and glorious, it is something to celebrate and to cherish and to love. And when it is broken, it is a heavy thing. And so we sometimes feel that to be told, well, the solution to all of this is that you're invited into something called the church, and the church is the family of God. And perhaps even in that, we've experienced the brokenness uh, and dysfunction sometimes of church relationships. And we really wonder, Lord, is this worth much? I mean, here you're calling us the family of God. Do I have the imaginative capacity to, to love that, to be drawn into that as something that is precious and to be cultivated? That can distress us. Yet, Yet, above these distressing factors, clears to us that Jesus has brought into a new, brought us in all the good that we love from our families and all the good that we seek to celebrate and to hold on to. None of that is lost in this new family. And all the dysfunction that we sometimes have to grapple with and wrestle with and lament over, we're brought into a family where that is broken up and healed. Jesus is not dismissive about good things. He's not ultimately dismissive of his natural family. And he's not ultimately flippant about the ways in which we experience so often the brokenness of family life. No, above all, this passage is comforting. It's precious because it declares to us that Jesus has brought us into a new family where nothing good is lost. And what is bad is, broke, is healed and bound up in him. You know, all the things that we need for a future and a hope. And, and by the way, not just for ourselves, but also for our children, also for the next generation, all the things that we most need to be given a future and a hope are ours, are irrevocably ours, because we belong to Jesus. Think about how oftentimes, and we've heard it in this election season, and, and that's nothing new. We hear it in every election season, but so often these are the dominant themes that we hear when it comes to elections and changes in government, that the things that are most precious to our lives together, and particularly to our families, are at stake. And yet for you, as beloved sons and daughters of the Most High King, these things are never at stake in any election, because they're there, they are yours irrevocably, irrevocably, because you belong to Jesus. That is the great hope that we have. All my life, you have been faithful. That is the hope in which I stand. And when Peter delivered that first post-Pentecost sermon, and he said, 
This is the promise, the goodness of God, not just for you, but also for your children. He didn't just say that for the benefit of those who were listening to him then. He said it for ours. Now, we may feel, well, that is a hope that is sometimes hard to see. Remember from our Roman series. Well, yeah. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Because, you know, we haven't been given a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We haven't been given a spirit of slavery that says to, our, to, to ourselves in the quiet of the night, oh, you know, I, I'm really messing up, you know, or, or this is at stake. I better, you know, get up my gumption and, and do the right thing because I might lose this. We haven't been given a spirit of slavery. We've been given a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters so that God's spirit with our spirit can lift up our voices so that we cry, Abba, Father. And when we do that, the spirit testifies to our heart that we really are the children of God. And if children heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. So yes, Jesus is not flippant here. Yes, it is sometimes hard to see. Yes, the brokenness and dysfunction that we sometimes see in our families and lament. Sometimes the, the unmet expectations and longings. Perhaps you're single and you long to be married. Perhaps you long to have children. Perhaps you, you struggle with the disappointment of, of raising up children that, are, that, that, that just don't, don't seem to be following the wise instruction of the Lord. There's all sorts of reason that we can live and feel the pain of, of broken family relationships. Jesus is not for a moment flippant about that. But nothing good is lost. And everything that is broken is healed by him because you are drawn into a new family where he is at the center. Well, let's see this particularly in our text. In verse 46 we see that Jesus' mother and brothers are outside. Now, that's not a throwaway line, just a little sort of detail that could be just as well gone as, as there. No, we need to pay close attention to that. Mark 3, which is the companion passage in the synoptics to this passage in Matthew, gives us a little bit more information about what's going on. What's going on is that Jesus' mother and brothers think that Jesus has gone crazy. He seems to be neglecting his health, He's spending all of his time in these massive crowds. It doesn't seem like he has a whole lot of time even to eat. So he must have lost his mind. Now, this is unbelief, but it's not quite the unbelief of the Pharisees and the scribes who are hostile to Jesus, who understand more or less exactly what, is saying, what he is saying and hate him for it. This is the unbelief, essentially, of blindness. Now, we know that Mary and Jesus' brothers won't remain here forever. Mary is at the foot of the cross. James becomes free. They're unbelieving. Jerusalem church, so they don't remain here forever. But at this point in the biblical story, they're unbelieving. And what that means is that they're outside. Jesus' disciples are inside this house with him. And they're inside this house with him so that they can hear him. So they can sit at his feet and learn from him. And Jesus' mother and brothers are outside. They're not anywhere near there. And they're trying to come to the door and trying to get Jesus to come outside to them. Jesus, come and deal with our concerns Jesus, come and deal with the issues you've got going on here in your family life. We're not going to come inside. Brothers and sisters, this is sobering. We need to hear this. In what ways are we ourselves putting ourselves outside where Jesus is? Outside of being able to sit under his teaching. Outside in our own merely earthly and worldly concerns. Concerned with building our own little kingdoms. Concerned with the anxieties that we're dealing with from day to day. Instead of sitting at his feet and learning from him, who is gentle and lowly of heart. You know, there's, there's a phrase going around these days that 
Grace restores nature, and that is true. Amen. But so often, I think we can take it in the wrong key, and we can use it as uh, an excuse to say, well, what God is doing in the world is restoring all the merely earthly ambitions that we have. And we have them, right? We have ambitions for a good name in the community, ambitions for a good job done at our works, ambitions for children that grow up halfway knowing what to do, ambitions for a church that is filled and filled with a good reputation, a people who love and do good in their community. We have all sorts of ambitions. But brothers and sisters, what we are given in Jesus Christ is far grander than our merely earthly ambitions. Yes, grace restores nature, but grace expands nature. Grace expands our vision of what is possible for us as God's beloved people than we ever dared to hope for or to dream. Are we looking for it? Are we sitting inside with Jesus at his feet? Or are we merely outside? Trying to get Jesus to come out to our own concerns. Jesus, deal with this. Jesus, come and speak a good word into this situation. Do we instead run inside to him where he is to sit at his feet? The text continues in verse 49. Jesus replies to the man who tells him that Jesus' mother and brothers are outside. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, this is an astounding passage. Think about it. If Jesus was try- what Jesus was trying to do in this moment was to assure his family that he hadn't gone insane, this is a bad way to do it, don't you think? <laughs> Jesus, we're really concerned that you've lost your mind. You're not eating right. Uh, you need to come out to us. And the first response he's going to give them is, I don't even know who my father and my brothers and my, you know, my mother and my brothers are. Not a good way to convince people that you're in your right mind. But Jesus has another purpose here. His purpose, as I said, is to expand to see that not only is his natural family included in his affections, but we ourselves are included right there with him. Right there with him. Now, it's interesting to think about the disciples sitting and, and pondering this reality. Perhaps we can imagine the scene. Perhaps they are sitting around some table. Perhaps they're eating lunch among, you know, Preston among the crowd. Perhaps Peter has his sandwich there. And we we remember those guys, right? Peter and James and John, people who at this point, and really for a long while yet, are by no means spiritual warriors for Jesus. People who've got it all together and figured it out. At this point, they still think that Jesus has come to be the earthly Messiah that they were expecting, the guy who's going to deal with the Romans, give them a good kicking, you know, and reestablish the theocratic kingdom where they'd be on top. So their faith is hardly better than Jesus' mother and brothers. And yet, and, and you could probably imagine the scene too, you know, here's Jesus off in the corner, there's the guy who's come in to tell him, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside, you need to go deal with them. And all of a sudden, Peter, maybe Peter looks up, sandwich halfway to his mouth, and Jesus stretches out his hand and says, here are my mother and my brothers. And they're probably thinking, uh, what? That they would be given such a profound identity in him, not on the basis of their deep theological understanding, not on the basis of anything that they had done. So often, I was just talking with somebody earlier in the week, how I think I can draw straight lines to whatever situation I'm facing, particularly if it's a bad one, and something I failed to do in the past. Oh, I think I'm really good at that. And so, I, you know, and that's not a, for one moment something that brings natural comfort, although it's some, it seems at some level to, you know, puff up my pride because I think, well, if only I do the right thing next time, then I can assure myself of, of a blessing in the future. The disciples often acted in the same way. And yet Jesus, in contrast to all of that, in spite of all of that, calls them his mother and his brothers. 
Isn't that astounding? Would you ever dare, apart from this passage, to call yourself a mother of Jesus? A mother of Jesus. I mean, the, the cheek. And yet, we're given the permission, the authority, in fact, to do it. Would you ever dare to call yourself a sibling of Jesus, a brother or a sister of Jesus? And yet, here you are. Not because of anything that you've done, not because of your great spiritual understanding or your warrior status for Jesus, but because he loves you and he's called you into a new family. Jesus continues in verse 49. Uh, here, we, we, we mentioned that. Here are my mother and my brothers. We, we, we see that this is an excellent thing that we have, far greater than anything that we could dare hope for, far greater than anything that we could imagine for ourselves. And in verse 50, we see the ground of this stupendous reality, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, whoever does the will of my So we have to ask ourselves, well, what is the will of our Father in heaven? What is the will of Jesus' Father? He said it very plainly. In many passages in Scripture, we can quote a few. John 6, 40, this is the will of my Father, that we believe the Son. Matthew 17, 5, the great picture of Jesus transfigured on the mountainside. And what does the voice that speaks out to the disciples say to them? This is my beloved son. Hear him. Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 5.16. We no longer regard Jesus merely according to the flesh. Oh, oh, we could do, and lots of people do, who don't have faith and don't believe in him. They regard Jesus merely according to the flesh. A good moral teacher, a great guy with some good examples, but at the end of the day, a man just like anybody else. We no longer regard Jesus merely according to the flesh, but as he really is, the God-man, the Son of God, our Savior. That's the will of our Father in heaven, that we see Jesus and believe Jesus and obey Jesus for who he really is. D.A. Carson puts this well, the quote in your bulletin. He says this, the way for us to be as close to Jesus as his nearest and dearest, as his nearest and dearest, is to do the will of his Father. Note carefully that we do not, by this, make ourselves Jesus' close relatives by doing his heavenly Father's will. Rather, doing the Father's will identifies us as his mother and sisters and brothers. The doing of that will turns on obedience to Jesus and his teachings, according to Matthew, for it was Jesus who preeminently revealed the will of the Father. Do we respond to Jesus as he really is? Or do we regard him merely according to the flesh? That is how we will do the Father's will. And when we do that, we are counted his family, his mother, and his brothers, and his sisters. Well, that's the theological ground. A few words, how can we experience this reality more deeply? I said before, the great question for us is, what makes a church a family? What makes Christ Community Church not merely an organization that's concerned with nickels and noses and all the things that we have to think about just in, in life in a fallen world, but what makes us instead a family? A, a second question for us to ponder in connection to this. In what ways have you experienced Christ Community Church as family? And in what ways have you engaged with others at Christ Community Church as family? How can we experience this reality more deeply? Well, I think there are four things that we can glean from this passage to help us to not only experience our identity as God's beloved family, but also treat one another as we really are, as God's beloved family. The first is that we treasure the Word of God 
preached to us week in and week out. That we don't stand outside waiting for Jesus to come to our merely earthly concerns, waiting for Jesus to speak a special word to us, waiting for Jesus to fix his feet. Brothers and sisters, I think this can be one of the most challenging aspects of life with Jesus, of our, of our discipleship, because it is so easy to treat this book as if it were written merely for our mental health. But we live in such a culture that is so therapeutized that we really do believe at the end of the day that this was given to supply the right answers to the various problems that we're going to face in life. And so we begin to treat God's word as if it was like a, a, a catalog. Go through here, and if you're facing marital difficulties, apply this. Facing you know, unmet longings and expectations, apply this. You know, if you want to do well in your work, apply this. And yes, it's easy to do because God's word has a lot to say about those things because it meets us right where we are as people. But brothers and sisters, do we value and treasure the word of God preached even on the days, which will happen more often than not, when we really fail to see the connection? How does this word that you are preaching to me, Lord, how is this particular revelation of your will going to fix the things I'm dealing with this week? How is it really going to be the case that I am brought into a more loving frame of love for myself and for others and for those I disagree with merely by hearing the gospel story that I've heard so many times yet one more time again. Brothers and sisters, we must value and treasure the word of God as it is preached to us because it is doing things for us and shaping us in ways that are more deep and mysterious and profound than we typically have the ability to recognize. So that is the first way. How do we experience life together as family? How do we experience Christ Community Church as family? That we treasure the Word of God preached in community. It's not for nothing that we are gathered together to hear this Word preached. I know sometimes it really does feel that way. We have to fight, and this is really just to apply the lessons we've been learning over the past month in our divine worship, our worship as divine invitation sermon series that we would see worship as blessed necessity, that there's something unique about us being gathered together and hearing the word of God preached together as family. That's not for nothing. Secondly, we should put Jesus at the center of our self-understanding. We put Jesus at the center of our self-understanding. Here's what I mean by this. Simply that we take pains, we take effort to make it clear to our own hearts to ourselves, and to others, what we really are. Uh, one of the ways in which I've been convicted by this, and, and I, I, the more I've convicted about it in my own life, the more I, I tend to see it's just kind of the way that we just talk in, in our general culture, but the ways in which we can be very self-deprecating about ourselves in an unhealthy, introspective way, in a morbid kind of way. There's a kind of false humility that, that, that pretends that we're, you know, oh, I can't do anything right, and, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's sort of the warm theology just writ large over all of our lives. Now, that's not the kind of humility that Jesus calls us to. The kind of humility that Jesus calls us to is to recognize the astounding family of God. The, the more we see of Jesus and the more we rec recognize what he's actually called us to be, that we would be called the mother of Jesus or the brothers and sisters of Jesus, and the more we know of his perfections and our own sinfulness, the more that cannot help but to produce in us the kind of humility that isn't self-deprecating, isn't worm-like, but is filled with joy and hope because it recognizes how profound his love for us, how deeply that is changing us, and how we get to live that out in love for ourselves and for each other as beloved family. So put Jesus at the, self, at the center of your self-understanding. That's the second one. Here's the third. Resolve 
to cultivate affection for your fellow church members just because they are fellow church members. Resolve to cultivate affection for your fellow church members just because they are fellow church members. It's not been, I'm not the first person to notice this. It's been said many times over and over again, but it's still profound and beautiful truth. We don't actually get to determine who joins us at Christ Community Church. Now, I don't mean theologically. Yes, you have to believe the gospel. Yes, we have elders. Those are good and beautiful and biblical things. What I mean, though, is we don't get to determine what they look like. We don't get to, to make strictures about what, what sort of socioeconomic class they come from. We don't get to make um, rules about what kind of personality they have or whether they're introverts or extroverts. We, don't, we determine none of that. And God, in his goodness and also in his humor, often pairs us in the body of Christ with people who look very different than we do and tells us, love them like family. You have experienced this, I'm sure, and it's a beautiful and profound reminder of the gospel. When the Lord pairs us together together with people that we probably otherwise, in the, church, in the church, he pairs us together with people otherwise we never would have had any contact with, certainly no deep relationship with, and he calls us to love them, and we start to see aspects of their unique wiring as individuals that are glorious and help us to love Jesus better, and they help us to see aspects of our personality that are beautiful that probably would have never come up in any other way. It's a beautiful thing. So resolve to cultivate in your heart deep affection for members of Christ Community Church simply because they are members of Christ Community Church. If you want a passage that cuts against the grain of commodification in our culture, the ways in which we so often use one another instead of truly loving one another, go to this passage. This cuts right against the grain because you cannot treat somebody else's commodity who you truly value as mother and sister and brother. So resolve to cultivate affection for each other just because you are the family of God. Take, take pains to share in their joys and sorrows. Really quickly, whenever I think of this, I think of my grandfather. And I've told you all before about how you know, just during the course of his life, I don't think I had very many deep conversations about spiritual things with him. And partly because he was of that generation that just didn't really bear their soul in that way, didn't talk about the things that were most meaningful to them. And, and I often regretted that. But what a beautiful thing it was for me at the end of his life to receive his Bible that he used, especially in his um, capacity as the music director of his local church. And to see all the passages that he had highlighted and marked up. To see the, the particular piece of paper that he had used and written down Bible passages that said things like, when I'm feeling low, go to this Bible passage. Or when I'm in a tiff with my wife, go to this Bible passage. Or when I'm feeling anxious for my children, go to this Bible passage. And, and I often think of that and return to that in my heart and mind. And remember, if God can do that for my grandfather, he can do it for me too. One of the ways in which we get to experience the reality of our being knit together as family is that we get to have a profound impact on the lives of each other in often ways that are unlooked for and unseen. And that is a beautiful thing. So lean into that resolve to cultivate affection for one another, and you will see God do things in your life and for the lives of those you care about that you did not look for. So treasure the word of God preached. Put Jesus at the center of your self-understanding. Cultivate affection for one another. And finally, press on to know Jesus. Press on to know Jesus. Jesus said it very clearly. If you try to save your life, you will certainly lose it. And that doesn't just mean 
If we try to save our marriages, we will lose them. If we try to save our reputations at work, we will lose them. These things are ephemeral. They're like the grass in the field. They're here today, and they're gone tomorrow. But if you seek the kingdom of heaven, not only will you have life everlasting with Jesus, but he'll provide all these things for you. Brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, and a hundredfold in this life and in the age to come. So often our lives are, are filled with striving after things that we have no power to hold on to at the end of the day. And we fail to press on to know the Lord. We fail to press on to know Jesus. And yet Jesus here is giving us the greatest permission that we could have, the greatest motivation that we could have to press on to know him. If the will of the Father is that we would believe the Son and trust the Son with all of our heart and soul and strength and might and mind, brothers and sisters, there's our marching orders. There's, there's the direction for us for each and every single day. There's the freedom not to be anxious about what we eat, or what we drink, or what we wear, or how we raise our kids, or how we produce a good marriage, or how we leave a legacy that we'll remember for generations. We can set all of that aside. We can put Jesus at the center of our self-understanding. And he is never dismissive about the things that we think we lose in the process. He's never dismissive about anything that is good. Everything that is good is ultimately won in him and kept in him because he treasures his people as if you were his mother and his brothers and his sisters. So press on to know the Lord. And again, as I say, this is often done in ways that are unseen and unnoticed. There, there's a way in which um, George Eliot, I don't know that she was a Christian. Somebody maybe can correct me if you know this, but um, at least not a very consistent one. But she wrote a, a novel called Middlemarch. And I love the way in which she ended this novel, Middlemarch, because it just speaks so profoundly, I think, to the ways in which we experience the ordinary humdrumness of life and how that actually has consequences that are far beyond we have the ability in our flesh to see. Here's how she says, how she puts it. She says, the growing good of the world is partly dependent on, and I love this, unhistoric acts. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. I think that's beautiful. And, and, and at the end of the day, when we think about it, isn't that so true? The, the, the things that have meant the most deeply to us in the shaping of our lives and the setting of a future and a hope for us are not usually the banner and fireworks things. Now, those are good and beautiful, and we should celebrate those with banners and fireworks. But often, it's true, the things that matter most are the unhistoric acts, the faithful perseverance, the long obedience in the same direction. Brothers and sisters, how are we going to be the family of God? By doing un unhistoric acts together. This is small group participation. That seems like probably an unhistoric act. It's doing things that are greater than you can presently see. Your faithfulness in Bible study, the mornings when you know, you're waking up and you know, it's still 6.30 and you're not really just fully awake and you're really struggling to think through, all right, what does it mean to be a Christian in this context and how do I understand this? Unhistoric act, doing greater things than you realize in the moment. Ordinary hospitality, the love that we show to one another just to have one another over into our homes and to inquire, what's going on in your life? How do I become a better friend to you? Unhistoric act, doing greater things than you realize. One day, all of us, if the Lord tarries, will rest in tombs that go unvisited. doesn't matter how great or famous we may be in this life if God chooses to make us famous. Less of a blessing than I think we think. 
But all of us one day will rest in unvisited tombs. But nothing that is good is lost. Nothing that is broken will fail to be repaired because though you may rest in an unvisited tomb, you are called the mother and the brother of Jesus. You are counted as his family. So how can we as, one, as fellow believers, how can we as the family of God seek to encourage one another in this great truth? Final quote and then we're done. This is from Richard Lovelace in his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life. He says, individual and corporate spiritual vitality are co-inherent. That means they're involved with one another. They affect one another. Individual and corporate spiritual vitality are co-inherent. It is impossible to grow to full stature as an individual while separated from smaller and larger groups in the church, nor can the body grow without the renewing of its members. Here's what this means very practically for us. If you're going to take the spiritual temperature of your own heart, the place where you should look, first of all, is the spiritual temperature of Christ's community church. If you're seeking to be encouraged, if one day you wake up and you think, man, I'm just feeling really discouraged. I got a lot to do this week. I'm not sure if I have the resources within myself to do it well. Where is God at work? You ought to think of Christ's community church. Be on the lookout for the ways in which he is at work, not just in your life, but in the lives of your fellow believers. And when you think of Christ's community church and the goodness of the Lord in all that he is doing in each of our lives, you ought also to think of the goodness of God to you because these things are co-inherent. They affect one another. Our, the, the way in which we grow in grace is also the way in which the body of Christ Community Church grows in grace. And as the body of Christ Community Church grows in grace, so will we. These things are co-inherent. And so that is a profound and deeply meaningful thing for us. It also gives us, I think, the best ground we could have to be the family of God for one another, to encourage one another daily, and to be encouraged to see the Lord is at work in so many good and beautiful ways, and that affects us too. It's a good thing when God brings up and repairs relationships that are broken and re brings reconciliation, not just for those who are reconciled, but for those who get to see and to celebrate that. It, it's a good thing you all missed uh, uh, um, Colin and uh, Haley Hamlin as they left at the earlier service and now go to Mountain City Church in Jasper. You know, that, that, that's not just a good thing for them and a blessing for Mountain City Church. That's also a good thing for us. We were part of that, you know that the Lord raised up and built up Colin with his unique gifts, and now he gets to be a blessing to churches, to a church in Jasper, that ought to fill us with the deepest and profoundest gratitude. That affects us too. And the ways in which Colin served us will also build him up in faith and love. Brothers and sisters, our vitality as the family of God is deeply connected to the vitality of the church, and that is a beautiful and wonderful thing. So treasure the word of the Lord preached each Sunday. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. God is building us up in it to be the family of God. Seek to put Jesus at the center of your self-understanding. Have affection and cultivate affection for one another just because you are the family of God. And above all, seek to know Jesus. Seek to put him at the center of your life. Seek to sit under his teaching and understanding. As you do, you will discover he doesn't merely make you his follower. He makes you his family. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the ways in which you reveal to us the depth of your love for us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, that is not a vain love. It is not something that just comes into our heads and sits and produces sentimental thoughts in our hearts. No, Lord, it is an active love. But it is a love that gives us a, a future, an inheritance, a status that is so much greater than anything the world can offer. 
so much greater than all the things that we are seeking to hold on to by our own anxieties and efforts. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to love this truth. Help us to see it as it really is, a truth given to us so that we would be built up in a deeper and profounder sense of who you really are as our Heavenly Father and who we really are as your beloved children. Help it to affect the way that we relate to one another. Help it to affect the way that we engage in the ministry of Christ Community Church and recognize none of this is simple. None of this will be lost. None of this is meaningless. Nothing that is good, Lord, will be lost. And all that is broken will be healed by you because we are your family. So Lord, help us to feel it, to live it, to believe it, and to rejoice in it. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.